Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors, who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador James Keith. Jim Keith grew up in Asia, born into a family serving the U.S. government overseas. When it was his turn, Jim joined the Foreign Service just as the United States and China were establishing official diplomatic ties. Over the subsequent four decades, Jim was involved in crafting and executing U.S. policy with Asia and China, from human rights to nonproliferation, Taiwan to Hong Kong. Twice detailed to the White House National Security Council, Ambassador Keith has both the long history and bureaucratic insights to explain how the U.S. has interacted with China since the 1980s, and what's worked and what hasn't. One of the most challenging and confusing issues still with us today that Jim had to deal with firsthand was Hong Kong. From 2002 to 2005, he served as the U.S. Consul General to the territory, which U.S. law considers separate from the mainland in many areas of policy. To set the stage for our conversation, in July 1997, this former British colony was returned to China after over a century and a half of British rule. It was a triumphant moment for the People's Republic, as Hong Kong's return was a significant step in restoring territorial sovereignty after China was carved up by European powers and Japan in the 19th and 20th century. Here's Prince Charles at that official handover ceremony on a rainy day, July 1st, 1997, in Hong Kong. The Prince of Wales. The British flag will be lowered and British administrative responsibility will end. But Britain is not saying goodbye to Hong Kong. More than three and a half so as unrest Hong in Hong Kong never seems far from the headlines, Ambassador Keith's experience in Washington and in Asia should help provide the foundation for guiding us forward on this and many other issues in the region. Ambassador Jim Keith, thanks so much for taking time this morning. Uh, great to see you. Before we get to your long career on China and in the Foreign Service, I just wanted to have you talk a little bit about your history and your family of you joined the Foreign Service, but you were in a family that was serving overseas. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I was born um, kind of in the middle of the baby boom generation, toward the latter half, I suppose, but still pretty solidly in that middle third anyway. Um, my father and mother both came from the South. Uh, my, my father had to get permission to join World War II as a 17-year-old made it just at the very end, uh, took a cruise on the USSS Champlain to Italy and back, and that was the end of the war for him. Um, but he had uh, you know, had ambitions, I suppose, to uh, serve one way or another and ended up serving uh, as a civilian in the end and, and lived the embassy life uh, along with his family. Before I was born, he was in Germany in a kind of paramilitary role uh, my sister was born there, my older sister, and then came back to the States. Uh, I was born in Virginia, and um, 
uh, we first went overseas. I first traveled overseas with a family as an infant to Tokyo. Spent uh, four and a half years in Tokyo uh, before the Olympics. Actually lived wow. on Air Force housing that eventually became dorms for the athletes for, mm -hmm. the, for the Olympics. Uh -huh. So I uh, spent uh, late 50s, early 60s in Tokyo. I'm told I spoke Japanese with my Really mind. well, right. <laughs> don't remember it at all, of course. I, do, I vaguely remember seeing things like Bonanza in Japanese and that kind of thing. <laughs> on a black and white TV. Uh -huh. Oh, no doubt, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then came back. Uh, we went to uh, Indonesia uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, and then Hong Kong. Uh, Cultural Revolution was still going on. Oh. So that would have been '68 or so that we started. '65 uh, to '68 in Indonesia, '68 to '71 oh. in Hong Kong. So you were finishing up your schooling. I was in yeah. high, I was in middle school, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, came back to the U.S. for three years of high school and then went to Taipei in 74 uh, for my senior year of high school. Graduated from Taipei American School where I met Jan, my wife, which, so it was a momentous move from, uh, from a retrospective perspective. Um, came back, went to college, uh, joined the Foreign Service, went out to, in 1980, joined the Foreign Service, went out to Indonesia for my first tour, uh, came back to the China desk and then served a almost all of the rest of my career in East Asia, both Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. So thank you. On, on that, um, in the kind of mid-1980s when you were working for the East Asia Pacific Bureau on China, what what were U.S. goals with China and how did you, what was your part in that and how did, how did you execute those those goals? So the, you know, sort of the founding generation, I suppose you could say, uh, of, uh, of China hands had, you know, come before me. Uh, they, you know, the liaison office days and, and then uh, Deng Strip and normalization preceded my arrival on um, the China desk, but it was still early days. It was those days when um, we were still pretty much at the center of everything that was happening because um, the, the White House and the State Department you know, there was so little going on as we were generating things that, that we really could control almost all of it. Um, and by we, you mean EAP, CM, or you mean part of that part of state? So it was, you know, it, it's a good question because uh, it, it started out to be just EAP and the NSC Asian Affairs Office really was the nucleus and along with the civilian side and people like Jan Barris, the National Committee. Um, but you know, gradually, even during my time, it was expanding. So the Pentagon came to play uh, much more of a role, and so, of course, PM came to play a, a much larger role. The in political military bureau of the State Department. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you know, other you know, functional bureaus and, and other uh, aspects of uh, other components of the White House. So that, you know, the, the goal really was illustrated by that bureaucratic reaction, that is, was to broaden and deepen the relationship I think on the foreign policy side, the, the broader international side, it was to um, put in place this, uh, to, to implement this concept of you know China being, it being being better for U.S. national interests for China to be on the inside than the outside. Well, what did that mean? It meant institutionalizing the relationships that China had across the board. So all kinds of covenants, all kinds of um, government and non-government organizations kind of came into play. You know, was was China to be a member of the International Committee of the Red Cross? Was China to be to sign on to key UN covenants, et cetera? So on the international side, it was that sort of institutionalization. 
bilaterally. Because uh, China was out of most of those, having just joined the UN in 1971 and somewhat ambivalent about some parts of the international system. In, indeed. I mean, keep in mind that you know, we were transitioning from the Cold War and the treatment of the former Soviet Union and China um, identically to a new set of uh, rules and, and rationales, and that meant both changing those rules uh, and changing the political environment associated with those rules in the United States, um, as well as um, uh, implementing a back and forth with the Chinese as to how uh, those changes should occur. So, for example, on export control, um, you know, had to go from the old rules that prohibited everything, essentially, to new rules that created what were called new green lines or you know new thresholds for allowing a bit more export control to go to China than went to the former Soviet Union, for example. And then bilaterally, similarly, it was institutionalizing the, the new sets of relationships and, and the new context. Remember, uh, Jesse Helms was, uh, as I recall, the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee had, and he still used the term Red China and, and meant it, you know, meant it. Right, right. And, and around the country... It I'm wasn't right. a rhetorical flourish. He believed that that uh, was that what was we were dealing came with. came naturally to yeah, him wrong. because that's what he knew. Yeah. And traveling around the country as a, a young officer, I mean, entered the Foreign Service young and was still quite young and very green. Uh, but, uh, you know, at, at that point, there were so few of us. I mean, we we de- definitely delegated down. So as a you know, brand new uh, officer on the China desk, I was sent off to, I've forgotten where it may have been, Washington University in St. Louis. But anyway, to, off to a university in the, in, in the heartland um, and shared the stage with a congressman. And we talked about U.S.-China policy from the perspective of a university that had large endowments from Taiwan, a long history of relationships with Taiwan, and had to be sort of brokered into this new world of mm-hmm. a normalized relationship with the People's Republic. And some new arrangement with Taiwan. Indeed. And that's, um, you know, that, that was typical, I think, of state legislatures, governor's offices. They all had... Um, liaison with Taiwan because they obviously in many of those places uh, reason for being is the international offices of those places uh, have a reason for being uh, which is to raise money and Taiwan was you know quite effective at um, you know uh, c- completely above board and, and legal and legitimate and transparent lobbying obviously over the years and in fact over the course of that decade they there became a reason uh, to not only have Taiwan representation but also mainland representation but in those days those early days that it was really swimming uphill um, from the perspective of trying to create um, a, a, a worldview that allowed for something other than um, you know the relationship with Taiwan and and of course you know the key element of normalization was how to treat Taiwan and kind of the, the what I would, you know, not not my idea, so I'm not patting myself on the back, but the brilliance of the you know, fairly simple notion of setting Taiwan aside and letting the rest, rest of the relationship move forward to the interests of both countries. Um, the 82 communique was clearly an important part of that, and, uh, you know, in retrospect, uh, might have been better if we hadn't done it. Uh, you know, it's easy to say now, but, yeah. you, know, you know, the uh, and, and I can empathize and sympathize with the people who were working it at the time. I mean, this was normalization at stake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, uh, there, it, this was not a sort of modest second-tier issue. This was front and center and a question of whether we were going to be able to continue on this path of institutionalizing uh, the relationship in the interest of the United States. So, right. In some uh, ways, almost a decade after 
Nixon's trip is when that communicate comes. You've got that decade of figuring out how the two, the U.S. and the mainland, are going to work. And as you said, Taiwan is this is the central issue that the Chinese are presenting and that we had to deal with in a legal and political way. And so it took some time for that to happen. And I would say for the people I've talked to for this project, few were happy with the communique, but you're, you're judicious and correct to say something, something had to be done. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's easy to say now that, you know, would have been better to come up with a different solution, but that's, I, I think, reflective of the revisionist um, point of view that is, is popular today. That is, you, you have to really, in the end, ask yourself compared to what. Mm-hmm. Um, it did some damage, though. There's no doubt about it. Um, the, the Chinese clearly believed that we took us for our word and, and believed that we meant to reduce quantitative and qualitatively the arms sales to Taiwan. And in fact, there was no political will to do that. And there's no way, we, even if that was our intent, there's no way as a democracy, as a representative government that we could have delivered on that promise. And so that plays into not only how the Chinese see our policy on Taiwan today, but also their view on um, the sincerity of our respect for the rule of law, which is really at heart uh, a misunderstanding. I think the, the Chinese see cynically our manipulation of a belief in the rule of law, when in fact I think the Americans actually do believe in it. And, you know, the, the Taiwan communique was, the 82 communique was, an, I think, an aberration in the sense of making a promise that we couldn't keep, not cynically manipulating the, the rule of law. Uh, on this time in the 80s, uh, I just wanted to ask two aspects of your time in on the China desk and working on China. One is just the kind of day-to-day, who were you dealing with in the Chinese embassy, or what were those? Did you talk to them daily, weekly, hourly? And then on the DOD side, I just want to ask, this is a time when the Soviet Union was still around, and one of the reasons why Nixon went to China and Kissinger built the relationship up was to try to bring Beijing closer to the U.S. and their view of the Soviet Union, and talk a little bit about uh, DOD programs and how that figured in, and then we'll get to Tiananmen, where that kind of all unraveled. Sure. So daily is the short answer to your question. It was quite quite intense um, uh, interaction with, with Chinese representatives. I mean, I was pretty junior in the beginning and more more you know more mid level by the time I came back than, than later in the eighties. But um, or I guess that was uh, quite late in the eighties by the time I got back. But at any rate, uh, you know the the desk director and the deputy director would have you know had quite a lot of active uh, inter- interaction with the front office of the embassy. And, you know, in those days, the State Department was different, too. So things that an assistant secretary or maybe a, a deputy assistant secretary does now, an office director and a deputy office director would have done back then. Smaller organization. And you're saying reaching out to the ambassador, for example, or what having, sorts of things? Having direct contact with the Secretary of State, for mm. one thing, oh, and briefing uh, the Secretary of State before a trip or a Chinese visit mm. to the United States, of which there were many. And, and I would say that, you know, just as an aside, the, the relationship throughout the 80s and 90s was characterized by um, visit-driven diplomacy. Uh, and certainly in the 80s that was true. And each major visit was sort of a way to kind of lurch forward, uh, in part because of the, the challenges and, and uh, sort of new territory on the American side and the bureaucratics on the Chinese side where, you know, no one knew on the Chinese side what was safe and therefore any new direction, any step forward into uh, unknown territory had to be top down. And so in that case, just taking an example of joining a UN covenant or a, um, uh, the ICRC or something like that, 
the U.S. and the Chinese side would talk about it. Maybe the U.S. side would say, this is an organization you should join. And then there'd be discussion. The Chinese would take it back to Beijing and then at the time of a visit would say, yes, we'll do that. Is that kind of roughly the orchestration? That's the dynamic, yeah. yes. So you would get, um, and, and on this I think still to this day, <laughs> you, you have the, the necessity for you know these long, drawn-out conversations, uh, rehashing very well uh, understood and known positions on both sides that really take the, the discussion not very far until more senior people get involved. I mean, the, but the advantage of it is it, it's educational. I mean, it does flesh it out and sort of creates the opportunity to discover if there are hidden traps in there for, for both sides and that sort of thing. Right, well, fascinating. So I want to talk. start moving to Tiananmen, and you were a political officer at the embassy in the run-up to that. Can you just describe your first trip to China and then a little bit about what Beijing was like in the late 80s? Sure. So the first trip would have been in the early to mid-80s mm-hmm. uh, as a desk officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, still you know, the, the the embassy, of course, was in its old quarters. Um, and we were still feeling uh, our, our way, you know, that this was uh, in a positive atmosphere, I suppose. I mean, the sense was that the sort of o- overriding momentum was toward closer relations, more engagement, um, more activity in the relationship. But it wasn't at all clear how to go about doing that. Mm-hmm. So we really were just, um, you know, sort of feeling the stones crossing mm-hmm. the river. Uh, it, it, but at a personal level, people were happy to see Americans, and your interactions were generally kind of positive. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> <laughs> um, because of course it wasn't uh, it, there wasn't uh, a well-worn route, so there was potential risk. Uh, so the engagement was wary, um, but I, I think you know clearly sanctioned, and therefore positive, but uh, it wasn't warm and friendly. It was, you know, a bit of... People were cautious. A little bit of ca- caution and, and conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then in, in uh, Shanghai as well. I mean, even Shanghai, which was looser, of course, than Beijing and, and uh, more open and obviously with a more cosmopolitan history. Um, there, But even there, you know, more of a sense of uh, risk and opportunity <laughs> but with the emphasis on the risk, and you know, if the mis- if the opportunity were missed, that would be fine, so long as the risk were were minimized. And then in the run up to Tiananmen, of course, I mean, the, you know, so things, you know, as the course uh, of as the eighties drew, drew uh, were were passed, as the, as the time passed in the decade of the nineteen eighties, you know, little by little, you know, things got more and more open. <laughs> I mean. I, in the in a, when, when Ambassador Lord was the uh, ambassador in the early part uh, of um, 1989, and uh, we we had a 10 year anniversary, of course, uh, of normalization, and it was at the Great Wall of Sheraton, something of um, surreal kind of uh, event with I, I've forgotten uh, pres- precisely the characters, but it was. It, it was quite lively and um, you know, a, a real celebration on both sides, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and at that time, you were in the political section. What was your job in the embassy? So I started out um, in, I guess, um, 86, 87, uh, doing internal political work, uh, working on rule of law and human rights issues. I took a long trip out uh, to... Gansu province to report on freedom of religion, 
Uh, Ed Meese came as attorney general with uh, something like 40 states attorney general for the first all-China legal reform conference. Mm -hmm. I remember Jim Brown was the uh, interpreter at the Great Hall of the People, and it was just maddening for him. I I don't, you know, he's phenomenal. And the way he managed that was something else because Ed Meese, the the then attorney general, was... um, in the habit of throwing out his prepared remarks and just speaking off the top of his cup. I mean, this started on the trip. He, you know, he added states' attorney generals to his official delegation on the plane, so much so that we couldn't fit them all in the, deleg- in the uh, motorcade going from the airport and you know, had no idea of what that meant mm-hmm. in Chinese protocol terms, mm-hmm. I mean, whether you're in or out of the delegation, whether you're in or out of meetings, have people wandering into meetings at the Great Hall of the People, driving Chinese security uh, crazy because they weren't on the list, because Mies had added them without telling anybody. Um, but it was a, you know, a major focus on legal reform and, and a really a, an historical event that we didn't realize. I think certainly I, as a young political officer, didn't realize how important that was and what a milestone that was for the development of at least you know, a, 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 you know, what you know, turned out to be in, in the fourth plenum of the last Central Committee and a real focus on using um, the justice system and the rule of law under the party's authority as a means of making life uh, fairer and, and more egalitarian for the Chinese people. At a time when there were very few lawyers in the whole country at that point in the 80s. Absolutely, and particularly as you got outside of the eastern seaboard. No, that's right. And then the second year, uh, I was uh, on the external side and did foreign policy, uh, including the Korean Peninsula. And then uh, political counselor Ray Burkhart and I were the first to meet with the North Koreans in what eventually became the New York Channel and then led to the Framework Accord. But we had three meetings with the North Koreans at the old International Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, at that time, the Chinese were genuinely facilitating and no more. I mean, they set up the room. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, told both sides it, where it is. And, and that was <laughs> they it. Stepped they back. didn't do anything else. And we did, we did that in Chinese, in fact, because it was the only common language. Uh, they didn't we, speak we English. We didn't speak Korean, and, and they Korean didn't speak English. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's, that was my second uh, second year. And Cambodia was a big issue. Bill Stanton was in the political section. Then he did the Cambodia issue. We, we had a number of you know important uh, foreign policy issues. We were working together with the Chinese at the time, not as important as you know, issues like, say, Iran uh, came to be later, but still uh, issues that were at the forefront of uh, our policy toward East Asia, and we needed the Chinese. Uh, and, and they were willing to uh, to respond, in, in, in at least to some degree. And so, generally speaking, if you met with a deputy director general in the foreign ministry or a director of an office about some regional issue, say on Cambodia, they would listen to the U.S. side and kind of have their points. But there was an exchange of views. Is that a a reasonable way of summarizing it? Sure. I mean, of course, we'd be instructed yes. with the marshes, so we'd re- receive mm-hmm. instructions to go in and ask the Chinese for support for, you know, X resolution mm-hmm. on Cambodia or, uh, you know, some element of our policy toward um, Korea. And we'd, we'd go into the, uh, the requisite branch of the foreign ministry and, and talk to them. Uh, also, uh, at the time I was the, you know, the reason I mentioned DEA earlier is I was the, the narcotics coordinator for the embassy which was, uh, you know, in, in those days, so this started in the you know, mid-'80s or so and really picked up toward the latter part of, of uh, the '80s, um, and, and was, you know, a, a good insight into the dynamic that we've been talking about of sort of paving new ways of, of cooperating, looking for mutual interest, and then discovering, you know, how different our systems were. So in the end, this uh, turned out to, uh, to, to be quite productive, but there were some 
Uh, stumbling. You, I was going to say, did you get a lot of lectures? I mean, putting Taiwan aside, because I think everyone has had their share of Taiwan lectures in dealing with Chinese officials on almost any issue, but putting that aside, on the foreign policy side or even the domestic politics side, was there a lot of kind of posturing and maybe anti-Western or anti-Americanism in what you heard from Chinese officials at that time? Surprisingly, not so. Uh, you know, certainly from the foreign ministry, there's never any shortage of that. Um, but, you know, this was quite operational. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, it was Ministry of Public Health. It was Ministry of Public uh, Security. It was people who were responsible for things where they could see an, an advantage to working mm -hmm. with us. So right. if you had drugs, as they did, coming across the southern border, and mm -hmm. the official line was, we don't have any um, problem with drug abuse in China, but these were the people at Ministry of Public Health and Ministry of Public Security who were responsible for the problem that mm -hmm. existed yeah. in Yunnan, and you know, as, as the, from the Golden Triangle, drugs were coming across, and you know, eventually the official line changed to, well, we have a transit problem; they're coming across and going out through southern China to the rest of the world, and all those, you know, uh, decrepit and and, uh, and and terrible capitalist regimes. But in fact, you know. Obviously, just as there is on our southern border. I mean, there you know you get the drugs flowing in, and it's not just non-Chinese uh, who have a problem with it. So, they were actually quite sympathetic to working with us and and willing to go pretty far. So, in you left uh, Beijing in 1989 to come back to Washington. What month did you leave in '89? Do you remember? So we were scheduled to leave that summer in, in the embassy. Uh, in those days, it was pretty much a wholesale turnover of the embassy every two years because people were on two-year tours, and you know it started at a certain point, and there hadn't been enough time for variation to set in. So almost everyone left you know, every two years, and I guess it would have been on years since I was mm -hmm. about in 89, um, you know, maybe two-thirds of the embassy, something like that. So we were uh, scheduled to leave uh, that summer. Um, so, you know, over the course after after the Huyabang and, you know, what's well known in terms of the, you know, that spring leading up to Tiananmen, you know, tensions kind of uh, rose and, and uh, the, the Chinese people um, started to kind of take matters into their own hands a bit. Normal diplomatic activity dwindled uh, as we all became reporters on Tiananmen and we all became internal political officers, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and... I guess we must have been scheduled to leave, you know, sometime midsummer or something like that. I mean, it never actually came to a point of scheduling a, a departure. I, I don't think because it was so much so, so up much in the air. demand for people to stay there and do things in, in, and report. In the end, we were. I mean, we it, the only time in my entire foreign service career, all of our effects, our car, our household goods, everything was just put in one shipping container and shipped to the United States. Wow. We thought, you know, when as it. As, as the stuff was leaving our house, we thought we'd probably never see it again. But, you know, it turned out all right. It, it all got there. But the families were evacuated, of course, um, in the immediate aftermath. And typically, uh, as, as is the case in most of these evacuations, probably after the, the, the most dangerous point. But um, so I recall it was a Friday, Saturday. Um, and um, after, you know, after Tiananmen itself on June 4th, um, there was this... Um, following um, incident that, where the uh, PLA, which had been encamped next to uh, one of our diplomatic housing compounds, shot into the building. And it was actually, we were holding, uh, at, at precisely that moment, we were holding a, a meeting 
um, on the main compound, uh, trying to decide whether we would go to voluntary or mandatory evacuation for non-essential personnel. And so, of course, that made the decision for us. And families and other non-essential personnel were all evacuated. And um, those of us uh, who were deemed essential personnel stayed on. And so it would have been probably September or so by the time I left and, and rejoined my family in the States and then went back to work on one of the remnants of uh, that period, uh, that, although I went back to be a Paul Mill officer, I spent most of the next year or so as a supporting player in the, the ongoing negotiation to get Fong, Dr. Fong out of the embassy and out of China. Well, uh, before getting to that and, uh, and kind of winding down military programs, I, I just want to get your sense when you were walking around Beijing in 1988, 1989, and you were saying it was kind of liberalizing atmosphere. What did you get? What did you understand from Chinese people? What they thought was happening, or what they thought might happen? What was that? What was that like? It's just hard to remember in Xi Jinping's China, in which things seemed quite tight. Mm. That there was a very different time in which yeah. people were. I don't want to say. Feel free to say whatever they want, but it was just a much more liberal atmosphere. Sure, and you know, it was uh, one. One has to sort of put that in context. Of course, that is you know, dependent on whom you were speaking to as to how well you how, knew them and how sure, comfortable I mean, they felt talking to you, of it, course. And yeah. I don't want to you know, make it sound like, I mean, there were you know, efforts by the ambassador and his wife to you know, create help and momentum to that sort of atmosphere. And, and that was allowed to happen. So I, uh, I don't want to go too far in the other direction, but you know, the, it was still uh, a, a set of official relations that you would recognize today, the sense of you know, the conservatism and wariness and and uh, caution that uh, Chinese officials would would use with us, but as the you know as that spring wore on, I mean, I, I, you rem- I remember speaking to foreign policy specialists who, you know, the 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 sixty-something professor would say that his thirty-something uh, mentees were all out marching, and you know he was quite open about it mm-hmm. and wasn't worried about you know anybody listening in and hearing that and that you know. It was, sort of that generational divide. He wasn't going to go out there, but he wasn't condemning them for Mm -hmm. doing so either. Mm -hmm. So it was more that sort of an atmosphere where, you know, this was life happening Mm -hmm. and it was being allowed uh, to happen and therefore people were allowed to talk about it. Uh, And then, of course, that all came crashing down and, you know, we we, we literally, the the gates were closed to, to government ministries. We literally went to places like the Ministry of Public Security and elsewhere and knocked on the gate. You know, the, the, the <laughs> Those right gate. by Tiananmen Square yeah. at the time. Yeah, still, still there. And, and of course, no one was home uh, because the, the the government had shut down and didn't have marching orders from the party, so it didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that atmosphere was, you know, was genuine. And mm. and and even um, I, I was on the square at the declaration of martial law mm-hmm. and. and oh. Even then, and there wasn't a, a sense that you know this was the beginning of the end. It was, you know, the the, the, the people can trust the government. It takes time for them to come around, but they'll come around. Mm-hmm. And then, at what point, either in the embassy or just kind of talking to Chinese contacts, was it clear that actually the PLA was going to come into the square? Yeah, I mean, I think throughout. I mean, you had, you know, the famously you had the the. the Residents of Beijing. I mean, I can't really speak for any anywhere else yeah. but Beijing. But the residents of Beijing setting up these sort of outposts on on the the out city outskirts where they um, set up roadblocks and using city buses. And essentially, the attitude was, you know, the the PLA will never turn against the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they accepted the you know what the the ideology had had uh, conveyed and portrayed to them. Um, I think you know the 
the embassy point of view was kind of quite skeptical and not to the point of cynical, but mm-hmm. certainly skeptical of that throughout from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there was a, rea- a, a very firm sense, not just the U.S. embassy, but of diplomats writ large that, um, you know, this was not going to end well. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't, the longer it went on, the... There wasn't a yeah. sense that this was, you know, a color revolution, mm-hmm. to, to use a term that right. hadn't been invented yet, sure. but it was right. that this was a color revolution, rather that, that this was likely the people getting too far out in front and, and that they would be, in some way, they would be drawn back. I mean, I'm not suggesting that anyone predicted Tiananmen itself, mm-hmm. but, you know, that this wasn't the beginning of, you know, the flowering mm-hmm. of, of um, democracy in China, but rather that, you know, this was going to end back. The party was going to reassert control, that it wasn't going to be the summer of love of Beijing of 1989, that yeah, it was going to end some way. There was no, you know, hate Ashbury. Right. So then you came back to Washington um, we're reunited with your car and your stuff um, <laughs> and working on Paul Mill issues. Uh, clearly the job had changed from what you thought it might have been in 1986 or whenever you were assigned to the position. <laughs> um, what uh, You had mentioned a little bit about, about what you were working on. Can you just talk a little bit about those the, sure. the projects? So, so really, I mean, I came back and, and the, the Paul Mill job was uh, basically a, a matter of for all of us, really, it wasn't just the poll mill officer, all the economic and political officers. It was, how do you manage the U.S. government's response to Tiananmen and um, the sanctions that were being put in place, the, the communications and and um, public relations strategy associated with that, and the political strategy of that is how do we work with the Congress and, and with the institutions of um, the executive branch to redefine the relationship for the time being. and recognizing that steps you take at times like that sometimes take a decade to undo. And I, I think in many ways the, the, the Office of Chinese Affairs and the State Department um, in, in the early 80s uh, was sort of pushing the relationship, trying to move it, develop momentum and move it in the ways that we described as far as broadening and deepening it and institutionalizing it, sort of thickening it. Um, by the late 80s, we were, I, I think we had a sense that there was some irrational exuberance, especially mm-hmm. in the economic and commercial side. Mm-hmm. But in general, we were yeah. trying to uh, act as something of a break on uh, the, the um, aspirations and perhaps um, uh, ir- irrational uh, objectives that, in retrospect now, we can say that you know were um, premature. Mm. And then, uh, again, in the 90s, after Tiananmen, we were, uh, I think, the, the State Department's role, and, and you know, guided by the National Security Council, was to try to develop an ongoing rationale for promoting and protecting U.S. national interests in China. That it, you know, just because Tiananmen happened didn't mean that U.S. interests disappeared, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was you know, with, with regard to Middle East policy or Southeast Asia policy or Korean, poli- uh, Korean Peninsula policy. Or you know, in the bilateral relationship and the sorts of things that you know would serve longer-term interests and would serve to help us both um, compete with as well as cooperate with China. And in my particular case, so the two things the, the the Pentagon and you know working with the lifting of those military sanctions. I mean, not lifting the imposition of those military sanctions was yet another case of um, you know the the distance between our two cultural distance b- between our, our two countries and. You know, clearly, the Chinese didn't believe that our system worked the way it did. It took us a year to just tell them how much 
was at stake and where, you know, how much monies they had and how many different programs and the accounting and the, the Pentagon was so labyrinth and, and Byzantine that and it was the things that we just couldn't tell them they didn't believe and thought mm-hmm. was, you know, they, that was rubbing salt in the wounds. And I think that for many years afterwards especially affected the PLA Air Force's relationship with the U.S. Mm-hmm. Air Force, which I think for, for years afterwards was uh, lagging behind the rest of, of the military-to-military right. relationship. And then the other much larger component of my work just because of who, you know my experience and, 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 and the personalities on the desk at the time uh, was working on the Fong right. uh, material and trying to, trying to negotiate on his release. On both the um, Fong case and for the military kind of reordering of things, were you dealing regularly with the PRC embassy here in Washington? And what, was, what were those conversations like? I mean, I think if you were a Chinese diplomat defending the regime, that's, that's a tough job to do. So yeah. uh, what were those conversations like? And, and precisely because of that, most of the, the communication, uh, the substantive communication, was U.S. Embassy to their masters, the, the Chinese Embassy's masters back in Beijing. Beijing. So the main conversation, both with the military and, and with the diplomatic community, was back uh, was out in Beijing, where you know we were in in Washington formulating the policy and instructing the embassy as to how to proceed. Uh, we we of course did have conversations with um, with the embassy, typically higher than my level as mm-hmm. a desk officer, and that would have been you know the assistant secretary and DAS for the most part, and to some extent the the office director as well, but those would have been kind of keeping them in the loop, really, mm-hmm. to be Saying, honest. Here's yeah. what we just told our colleagues in Beijing. Mm-hmm. So you know we're requesting this information or we're imposing this new yeah. restriction. And, so you know I what it is. Yeah. As, as you'll recognize, I mean, I, I think there was a, a also some, you know, effort to informally, you know, if not solicit their advice, at least keep them well enough informed probably beyond what they were getting through their own channels to get some of their reaction. And, you know, with different personalities, it mm-hmm. worked you, you differently. But, I mean, there was some, mm-hmm. not as much as one would like or what, you know, might exist, in, obviously, in a you know, sort of U.S.-U.K. or mm-hmm. U.S.-Germany kind of relationship. But still, it wasn't completely absent. So I don't want to say they weren't there. But um, really, it was, uh, you know, Washington to Beijing, through Embassy Beijing to Beijing. To the ministries the way in Beijing. that was discussed. Yeah. Um, just the... the be honest. I mean, the, the embassy, Chinese embassy, wasn't a player. Right. Um, I want to move to your time at the National Security Council, and you spent two two tours there. Uh, could you just talk, stepping back a little bit, about the role of the NSC in China policy from the two times you served there, and having worked on different parts of Asia there, uh, and um, kind of how you saw that evolution of White House involvement in in China policy. So, you know, having to keep in mind that you know, a decade separated the, the two times, and, and as we were discussing earlier about you know, the, the relative paucity of personnel uh, working U.S.-China relations in the beginning, I mean, that was true of my first stint, which really uh, my own work uh, was kind of utility infielder, but focusing a lot on, on Southeast Asia. At, at that time, um, I think the, the Brent Scowcroft's NSC was under 100 people. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. You know, very, very small group not seeking to do anything and everything on on policy related uh, to Asia or China, but rather really just those issues where there was a, a debate over priorities and helping to set the priorities is the way I would describe you know, what Brent Scowcroft's uh, NSC did. Clearly, um, because of his personal um, uh, uh, proclivities and, and experience, and because the president, uh, Bush uh, 41, 
um, because the two of them were, were intently interested in China. Remember that uh, that that trip that uh, the elder Bush took to China within a month of inauguration right. before Tiananmen, mm-hmm. which you know, resulted in the Fong case uh, to some extent, um, you know, was uh, a function of the elder Bush's very long history with China and very strong interest in China. So. Um, the NSC was was very very much central to uh, U.S.-China policy at the time. Um, I think later, and it, it it was uh, under not because of the personality uh, of the uh, National Security Advisor, but just a different time with so many more players and more of a you know sort of cacophonous environment. Then the the, the role was different. Um, I, I think where. Scowcroft could be uh, kind of a conductor in a way, but one where you know where the soloists were allowed to shine. I, I think it was necessary for um, for in the Clinton NSC, you know, for someone to kind of bring order out of chaos and have a little bit more active role in sort of setting issues up and and still making sure that you know outsized personalities had their you know had their say. But you know, it was much more the case by the time I got to the NSC the second time around that uh, what we all have all come to uh, know and love now in, in terms of the way the, the bureaucracy worked. I mean, in the Scowcroft NSC, the meetings actually were about discussion, whereas you know later uh, the the senior level and, and just below senior level meetings at the NSC were part of the orchestration of a clearly formulated plan. So the meetings were a means to an end, whereas in the Scowcroft Tennessee, the, the meetings were an end in themselves. Mm-hmm. So you, you really wanted the principals to get together to have a discussion. Um, you know, nowadays, too, I think it's the case that you, you have to bring people on board and the meetings are a mechanism for doing that, and, you know, entirely appropriate. But it, it was, you know, it was sort of, it wasn't the case my first time around that your whole eight-hour day was kind of the uh, kabuki and you know the eight-hour day that I followed. I prefer Jingju Beijing up, peaking up, but yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then right, you'd use the meeting to essentially tell the rest of the interagency what had already been decided. Um, yeah, I, I guess part of it is the news cycle had changed even by the '90s, and the number of players, as you were saying. I mean, they, they, at the beginning of the Clinton administration, there was this sense that we had a bunch of different China policies and. Um, particularly on defense and uh, kind of commercial issues, people were kind of going their own way, and so there was some need to rein that in. Yes, and and to be fair to to the actors at the time, including the presidents, um, you know, in in the early part of the the relationship, we were deciding our way and setting the channel, and it wasn't really clear what the other alternatives were or who the spokespeople might be for those other approaches. Whereas you know later. As the relationship had, as that effort had succeeded in in broadening and and deepening the relationship, you had many more voices who, um, not only were part of the discussion, but who you know, who had strong feelings about alternate points of view. So it was much you know much more difficult, I, I think. To it would have been impossible, I, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. To run, you know, run it the the Scowcroft way with a hundred people, um, because you know, it was just a it was just a different time and 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 such a um, richer. Uh, relationship with, with so many uh, different strands in, in the tapestry, so to speak. Is there one of those strands from your time at the NSC and the Clinton administration that you can think of as being particularly illustrative of that time or something you're particularly proud of that you worked on that you felt like, yes, you know, we did a good job as the, as the White House? Well, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite fit into any of those boxes, but, you know, clearly 
I, I had been deputy director on the China desk and then moved over be, to be the director at the NSC. And it, within, you know, before I got my boxes unpacked, the, the uh, accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade happened. And um, you know, we tried our level best, including a, a, a trip that Tom Pickering and I put together. I mean, he and I were the only clear uh, participants, and we had to sort of negotiate to get everybody else to go along and then went and, and, and made our case uh, in a in a quite stark and uh, brutal environment. It's more like uh, something a playwright would have produced than, you know, any other part of my diplomatic experience. And so in that, uh, it was a NATO operation, DOD function in some ways that started the, the chain reaction, but in the response, was that mostly the NSC and you folks over there or the NSC and state, or what's your kind of recollection of that? You'd mentioned your trip with, with Pickering of kind of how that all kind of came together. And it, it was NSC and state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we, we worked closely together, the two sides. Uh, clearly, you know, the White House was played a prominent role because it wasn't just a matter of you know, the priority and setting the, the boundaries, but mm-hmm. also how to kind of cajole the other players along. And that was something that, as a peer, was mm-hmm. difficult for state to do. But, um, you know, as a nominal <laughs> commander uh, in chief, the, the, you know, and, and as his agents, uh, the, the White House could do a little bit more easily and had, you know, sort of chief of staff to chief of staff relationships where, you know, they, 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 there could be a little bit of patience and a little bit of um, um, willingness to sort of uh, allow for venting uh, was necessary on the part of the White House, and it wouldn't have been possible at sea. So, I mean, there was a, an outsized role for the White House, but it was definitely a, you know, something that the two sides did together, and, and, and uh, Langley also, you know, was an important player, of course. And in the end, I mean, just to, uh, you know, just to reiterate what's been said publicly over the years, I mean, it was human error. Um, not human error that the Chinese were prepared to accept, or even to this day, I'm sure, but I'm persuaded, having you know seen everything, you know, having gone deeply into this for months, having lived it uh, for for many months, I, I'm persuaded that uh, not only was it a you know a combination of, of human errors, but and the it, error was just so that we're clear about what the error was on the on the human error on the U.S. side. Well, I mean, clearly we we hit the the, the American military forces hit the target they intended to hit, but they had misidentified the target. They thought they were hitting a warehouse, that not. Uh, the embassy, uh, you know, as hard as that is to believe, that's actually what happened. And it came so close, including, you know, stories of an individual who was on vacation and they came back from vacation, and very close to being caught. And in the end, I mean, personally, I mean, I think the, the person who's responsible and who should have taken responsibility at the time is the senior NATO commander. I mean, the person in charge, certainly other operations, uh, other commanders have had systems in place to prevent this sort of error. And that's exactly what, you know, our, our, uh, are, are, and that's exactly why we have such a high reputation um, in uh, in military circles is that we are professional and thorough about making these things work when you know when the stakes are quite high. The other uh, the other uh, thing that stands out from that time is the EP three uh, incident, which again, um, you know, not not so much. Uh, uh, one of those box that boxes that that you suggested, but I mean, here was something that easily could have been, you know, the the, the threshold for uh, a long-term uh, souring of, of U.S.-China relations. I mean, I remember it wasn't within 24 hours of the news breaking that 
uh, the yellow ribbons started to come out in the United States, which of course signifies prisoners of war. And you know, we weren't in a state of war. We weren't even calling ourselves adversaries really at at the time. And so there was a lot at stake there. And and I think uh, I I was in a position. Um, now I was back at state by this time, but I was in a position there to um, to to make a co contribution because we you know we weren't I wasn't surrounded at, at more senior levels by China hands I mean, or people who kind of like the you know the elder Bush team who had, had had either come to government with a fair amount of background on China or because the president cared about it had had developed that pretty quickly because they they recognized that that was a professional necessity. Um, so I, I felt, you know, in that case, I was able to help quite a bit because I was one of the voices of, you know, of, that, that had experience and judgment based on many years of having worked with the Chinese. So on both of these, particularly though for the Belgrade bombing, did you have to, as a China person and someone who dealt with the Chinese, you realized immediately this is going to be an issue to deal with at a very senior level, the presidential level. From your recollection on both of these, but but I'm thinking particularly of the Belgrade bombing, was this something you had to convince people inside the system that, oh my gosh, we really need to get something out at a senior level, we can't handle this at a kind of deputy assistant secretary level? No, I, I think they understood immediately. I mean, at the exec NSC executive secretary, you know, got it right away and was able to, you know, in ensure that you know, the communications to up and down mm -hmm. were such. I mean, there, there were things that, that I wrote that I, I know went to the president. I mean, that right wasn't away, true right. all, always, <laughs> of, of course. I'm sure everything you wrote went to the president. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but in this case, it, it actually is true. I mean, that, that you know, not not because it was me, but because of the, com the content of the conversations. There was a deep understanding right away that these were things that um, the top officials in the United States just had to deal with uh, immediately. Yeah. And, and recognize that, I know this was uh, WTO uh, accession negotiation time, too. So it's, it's not as if China was off the radar. Yeah. I mean, it was never really off the radar, yeah. but I mean, it was on the radar in a very, in a way that did involve right. many of those people. Right. So they, you know, had kind of a ready-made reason to understand sure. what was, this, you know, that there was a lot at stake. And Jurongji had just been in Washington in, in a the, couple months prior for the, e, the Belgrade bombing, yes. in which there was no conclusion of a bilateral WTO deal. Yes, one of the rare occasions, I, I, I guess, when both the Secretary of State and NSC Advisor's uh, recommendation to the president had been rejected, yeah. um, and it was a mistake. Mm. And it was, you know, all because of one individual's influence over the president and his assessment of the political ramifications of giving this to Jurongji in Washington, and his easy assumption that uh, it could always be done later. And not uh, there. There's a case where you know that the China expertise wasn't brought to bear because, you know, that decision was made without. Re reflection on the damage that would 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 be done and in fact was done to Jurongji to the detriment of U.S. Nat national interest in economic reform in China, and of course it was two weeks later that that the Exxon bombing occurred. So uh, the lesson there is, you know, if you can uh, don't don't believe that it, you if you think there's a deal on the table, maybe you should take it because it might not be there two weeks later for reasons that you can't predict. Um, I wanted to move to your time in Hong Kong. I, I should mention, by the way, that another element that, that runs through that this period that you talked about was the human rights side. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, lots of battles between EAP and what was uh, originally the HA, the Human uh, Human Rights Bureau. I don't know why it was called HA now that I think about it, but then became DRL. But those those battles were, you know, over the wording and the you know the the, the margins really and the 
the, the driving force of human rights as a part of of the policy, I think, was there in in a way that most people don't describe. And for me, it was um, not you know you had to avoid this. Going back to your your point about proselytization, uh, proselytization and education on the religious side, um, it, you know, by by talking about human rights, we immediately fell into a sterile conversation about you know. A, 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 Shining, shining city on the hill and American exceptionalism and why the Chinese should be like America, but rather what we should have been talking about was civil society and rule of law. And, and I think that was an important part of everything we did and really part of the institutionalizing of the relationship and what was behind the kind of responsible stakeholder notion. That underlying all of that was this notion that um, if, if China was going to be, be on the inside, what, it, what that meant was it was going to accept both the, the benefits but also the obligations of being a part of that system, which meant that rules mattered and you had to play by rules. So both in, internally and externally. Internally and externally. And and so an, an important part of what was achieved, not not, you know, by me, but with that I supported during those periods was kind of using the model of Fong, the release of, of a number of dissidents which China came to <laughs> believe was in its own interest, I think, because by getting them out of the country, they, they uh, devalued them and, and uh, uh, diluted their effect. But in, in fact, it was did make a difference for those particular individuals who got out. And, and also, I think, symbolically was important uh, as individuals went from um, detention, uh, you know, unjust detention, uh, administrative detention, et cetera, I mean, a long time incarceration in China to the airport, to the outside world, Yes, it's true. Their ability to influence um, politics in, in China was degraded because they were seen they weren't as in China within goods. Chinese society. Well, right and now, even more. I mean, they were seen as damaged goods. I think you know, from Weijingsheng to the students. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, throughout that period, I, I think those who were abroad, not only in practical terms, you know, couldn't mm -hmm. uh, couldn't do much, but also their um, their symbolic weight was They're discredited was internally because they were outside. To some discredited yeah. because yeah. they had turned their backs on China one right. way or another. I mean, they it's left. fair or not, yeah. the, you know, the, the honorable thing to do, I suppose, if if you're sitting comfortably drinking tea somewhere in Beijing, you can say is, you know, you should have stayed and suffered f further. I mean, it's a little harder to, to do that when you're actually in the prison yourself. But anyway, I just, I didn't want to neglect yeah. that because I think, you know, through the 80s and, and, and 90s, the Economic and security issues really got all, a lot of the attention, including nonproliferation, yeah, sure. which we haven't talked yeah. much about. But I don't want to neglect the rule of law and civil society yeah. because that was an important part of what was going on. It goes all the way back to that, you know, early Mies visit and mm -hmm. and his focus. You know, and the whole point of his trip, the Attorney General uh, traveling to China, what was to focus on precisely that set That's of issues. Um, I wanted to move to your time in Hong Kong uh, before getting to your job as Consul General. Can you just talk about why Hong Kong is important to the United States and kind of what, what we're supposed to be doing there? Yeah, so going all the way back to that first job I had on the China desk, 83 to 85, uh, as a desk officer, I was an economic and consular officer. I would come back from, just as an aside, I would come back from lunch and, and the, we had the we had cubicles in those, I mean, little offices, not mm -hmm. cubicles, mm -hmm. like, you know, with old wooden desks made, you know, delivered from the Bureau of Prisons and this huge wooden desk in my office. And I'd come back from lunch in those little yellow notepads for uh, telephone messages that were standard issue in the, in the U.S. government in those days. Would cover my desk. I would have like thirty or forty of them, <laughs> because I was the only person in the U.S. government outside mm -hmm. of the consular bureau 
who would talk to anyone uh, about consular issues. So my office director, and you know, in the old days, um, senior, you know, when I came in, the, the senior people had not done consular work. So oh, they, they didn't really have, didn't they were not know. required to no, do. No, it was really my generation that started out mm-hmm. as, you know, the first tour or two mm-hmm. would, all, would be consular. So they didn't really have a feel for it and didn't understand the, you know, the, the, the very nuanced relationship between a chief of mission and the consular section and, and the issuing officer. Uh, that you know comes second nature to those who who've been through it. So, I spent a lot of time on consular work. Some of it just you know sort of standard what comes up with visas. But in those days too, I mean, just going back for a moment, um, part of my responsibility was the program overseeing um, Chinese students in uh, the hard sciences and the f- the liaison between the State Department and institutions, faculty members, who, as you can imagine, were somewhat hostile to U.S. government intervention and what they they you know, considered to be uh, free speech in the end. Anyway, um, one of my, as an economic officer, we, we had split Hong Kong between its political and economic influences. So uh, a colleague whom you'll know very well, Steve Young, was the political officer at the time, and so he did Hong Kong political, and I did Hong Kong economic. Uh, in those days, textiles and apparel were a big issue in Hong Kong, and there's lots of uh, troublesome and nettlesome uh, commercial issues, but also the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs at the time was Alan Wallace, um, who was a you know well-trained economist and who saw Hong Kong as kind of the paragon of uh, a free, uh, a tariff-free regime, a, a free port, and you know so this is what capitalism should look like mm-hmm. from his perspective, and 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 he was prescient. I think. I mean, he was he was concerned way back then uh, that we weigh in and that we be a player and that we be part of the discussions that this wasn't just something we could walk away from and leave to the negotiation between the UK and, and the Chinese and that we had a stake and we had a national interest in Hong Kong as an economic uh, institution. Um, and over time, you know, that, that argument uh, developed uh, to the extent uh, that you know, we, we were making the argument that um, Hong Kong as an economic model for the mainland was useful uh, from a U.S. national perspective. That is, and and it did work that way. I think uh, you know I think those who predicted that you know, everything would fall apart in in '97 and that the Communist Party couldn't keep its hands off the goosling, the golden eggs, etc., were were proven wrong in the immediate aftermath uh, of '97. And and I think the the most stark um, evidence of that was all the Hong Kongers who had created. Uh, rights of abode elsewhere as as a you know safety net came back mm-hmm. and property prices went up and you know that in the immediate aftermath that worked pretty well mm-hmm. um, clearly uh, it hasn't uh, uh, in in more recent times and those who you know, predicted uh, that that the party um, I, I think they were still wrong in in their mechanism as to how this would come about but I, I think they were right to to be pessimistic about the, the potential for Hong Kong to exist as a separate entity. I think one country, two systems was dismissed pretty quickly, mainly because the Taiwans would have nothing to do with it. Uh, so it wasn't ever, I, I think, the U.S. government's um, acceptance of Hong Kong as a precursor for Taiwan, you know, from the mainland point of view, but rather that, that Hong Kong had important models, uh, important lessons to teach the mainland, and that it could. Mm-hmm. What it was, I think, uh, you know, sort of the, the simply put U.S. perspective. And just to pause there on one country, two systems, this was the formula that Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese came up with to say Hong Kong would be able to 
run many parts of its own affairs under the two systems, but it would be one country that it would, when it returned to China, would be under Chinese sovereignty. Yes, uh, sort of a 92 consensus <laughs> for Hong Kong, I, I suppose, uh, in, in a you know, very rough way of speaking. Right, so that um, the, the notion being that you know, uh, uh, and the accompanying promise from Deng Xiaoping that the system wouldn't change for 50 years in Hong Kong. And the argument was uh, that you know, if you were trying to look 50 years out, would the mainland look more like Hong Kong or would Hong Kong look more like the mainland? I think today, you know, one would make that argument that Hong Kong's obviously looking a lot more like the mainland, but the jury's still out. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it would have been wrong to sort of um, sum up and call it a total and, 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 you know, call it finished work in the immediate aftermath of ni 1997. I think it'd be wrong to do that now, too. I mean, the central conundrum continues to exist. This isn't original with me. It's a, a sort of a commonplace to talk about it now. But, you know, this, this notion that you've... Um, history hasn't seen this before, that you've got a one-party system trying to run a market-oriented uh, economy that makes decisions on the basis of, of you know, uh, prices for the all allocation of resources, this sense that you can have market forces at work and that, that they can be allowed to work to an extent, such an extent that the economy is genuinely influenced by them but at the same time have a one-party state that can avoid the problems of moral hazard and, um, you know, simply can't, you know, can't, can't abide the party getting stuck with things and therefore it intervenes uh, before, uh, before market forces can uh, be finally uh, brought to rest. I mean, I think that question, uh, whether that will work, whether that kind of a system will work, is still an open one. I think it's still worth working on uh, that that question from an American point of view. I think there's still an, an American national interest in trying to keep that op those options alive to the extent that that's possible from the outside, and it is only in the sense of creating windows or creating doors that the Chinese can walk through if they choose to. If they don't, they don't. Uh, but if they do, then that can move them further down the road of uh, actually having an economy that, that uh, works, uh, that, that is market-oriented. So, I mean, I think it's too early to, you know, determine that... Uh, Hong Kong's influence um, will necessarily be curtailed and that the future of Hong Kong is to be a small part of the Pearl River Delta, maybe. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the, the, the part of the, the prescience of, you know, some people who predicted that things would be more like they are today than they were in 1998, say, um, is, you know, human nature. I mean, greed. I, clearly, the, the business class saw you know, an opportunity. Um, and when you say business class, do you mean the Hong Kong business class? The elite Hong Kong business class saw an opportunity and, and drove China, uh, drove Hong Kong in a direction that, uh, you know, made it more difficult to make one country, two systems more than a slogan. Not all of it to the detriment of the Hong Kong people. So, for example, um, by taking the manufacturing out of Hong Kong and shifting it across the border, mm -hmm. Um, at least in, until the pollution drifted back, uh, you know, <laughs> for, for a, a while time, there, yeah. uh, Hong, Hong Kong was better off, not only in terms of air pollution, but, you know, industrial accidents, everything else that goes with the transition from a, a manufacturing hub to a, a service center. People's lives in Hong Kong got better yeah. as a result of the political stabilization that came with the deal and that came with American support for the deal. So 2002, 2005, you were in Hong Kong. That was only five, six years after Hong Kong reverted to Chinese rule. We're speaking now a couple of years after that. What was it like at that time of kind of the 
uh, the PLA garrison was there. The party was still kind of operating there through different mechanisms. But w- what did you feel like when you were there about what kind of Chinese influence was and how did it affect your day-to-day work as the consul general? It was a transition period. So, you know, we went from, um, and then that, you know, not quite the same transition as 97, of course, but we went from, you know, 97 happening and then, you know, people sort of holding their breath, wait, breath waiting to see what would happen and seeing that indeed, um, was life after 1997, to um, you know the the ascension of the business class and the the um, I think the subordination of um, political to economic um, objectives in in Hong Kong. So when C. H. Tung um, exercised his role as uh, as the number one man in Hong Kong, he he did it. You know, with a sense of trying to preserve, uh, I, I think honorably, and with a sense of trying to preserve what he thought was most important in Hong Kong, but at the same time with an eye toward the future and how Hong Kong could turn into something else, because the question after '97 was always, um, you know, what's the role for Hong Kong? What makes it special? What makes it different? I mean, this in, if the overriding dynamic was uh, in in pre '97 Hong Kong was how do we compete with Singapore? on the international stage, you know, after 97, it was how do we com- compete with Shanghai uh, on the China stage? Are we, you know, are, are we a way of helping people go in? Are we a way of helping Chinese go out? Are we both? Are we something different? Are we just, a, you know, a, another city in the Pearl River Delta and we're destined to become Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, greater metropolitan area? What is it? What's our identity? And that was, you know, very much the the, the flavor of... I was in Shanghai at that time, and there was a fair amount of triumphalism up there about, like, yeah, Hong Kong, it's really going to be... You know, we, why do you need that? We, Shanghai, we can do financial services. All the manufa- major manufacturing is around us here. That matters. And all the there was a lot of... Again, I think Shanghai's been taken down a notch since that time. But at that time, yeah, it was this unclear future of what the, the constellation would be of those different cities. And, and I think Hong Kong had a pretty um, realistic perspective on that. That is, you know, I never thought it was going to be the financial center of, of uh, greater China, uh, you know, certainly not as a southern city, certainly not as you know, nominally one country, two systems, and certainly not as a country that used to be a British crown colony. So they never, you know, that was in some ways, a, you know, a, a, a false uh, competition, um, never as true as it really was true with Singapore. Um, but. But but they also didn't. I mean, so they knew it wasn't. It was easy to s- describe what Hong Kong wasn't anymore. I mean, it wasn't going to be just another Chinese city. City they wanted to say because they retained. You know, with, there were elements of one country, two systems that were real. So, for example, to this day, you have Commonwealth countries uh, contributing justices to sit on the bench in Hong Kong, and and there is something you know much more substantive to the rule of law in Hong Kong than there is on the mainland. But you know, what you would have wanted in, in pre-97, you would have wanted to be able to say with confidence that, you know, looking ahead to the digital economy, if a company w- were to locate its server in Hong Kong, that Hong Kong rules would... Um, Always apply uh, and apply exclusively. Yeah. And, and with, you know, with some sense of guarantee. And, of course, you can't say that today. So, um, you know, I think C.H. Tung bears some responsibility, but, uh, you know, I, I think he was you know, perhaps... Um, it was a Sisyphean task. I mean, uh, you know, the notion that um, you could maintain a, a separate system in Hong Kong absent 
evolution on the mainland side. I mean, I think it was a it was it, it was a, a realistic prospect if both both uh, even if at different paces and from different starting places, the mainland and Hong Kong had evolved together in in roughly the same direction. Clearly, the mainland did not. Uh, and then and then separately, I, I think none of us foresaw that Hong Kong w- would be eclipsed not so much because of the party and its political machinations, but rather because of the economic success of the mainland. I mean, Hong Kong became less valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was easier for the politics to erode because the economics were no longer that bulwark. Mm-hmm. Didn't, the mainland didn't need Hong Kong as much, and therefore you know, all those people who wanted to get their hands on it were able to get their hands on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, then you came back and uh, working again on China as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for China. And I know we've talked earlier about uh, Deputy Secretary Bob Zellick's responsible stakeholder speech and uh, how that tried to frame the bilateral relationship and the Chinese side always seems to be looking for what the what the bumper sticker is so they know kind of how to interact. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about kind of that concept and then the Chinese reaction to it and how that kind of framed the discussion at that moment in U.S.-China relations. Sure. Uh, you know, you, you're right uh, about the sort of the Confucian notion, right, that if you understand where you are and, and all the boxes are clear and you've got uh, a clear characterization of all the relevant relationships, everything will go well. Um, it was really more Sandy Kristoff and Jeff Bader who were burdened with this uh, in, in uh, previous administrations, you know, for the constructive strategic partnership and the endless discussions on all of those. And, of course, later, um, the Chinese um, proposition that we ought to have a major power relationship of, however that slogan goes, I'm forgetting it for the moment, but uh, a, a new kind of major power relationship. There, There is, you know, as you know, and, and, and many of the people listening to this conversation will know, means something to the Chinese, and it's not, uh, it's not as... It's not to be brushed off. And so it was in recognition of, of that, um, you know, the depth of the importance of, of uh, uh, an ability to be able to capture the relationship and, and that sort of uh, a soundbite that drove Zelik. I mean, it was recognition that this would be important to the Chinese that drove Zelik to, toward that speech. And obviously the phrase itself was embedded in a speech that made you know, most of the listeners up in New York and when the speech was delivered pretty unhappy because it was um, in the context of, you know, a, keep, keep in mind that I was there not as at, the mom- at that moment as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary but as Senior Advisor because the White House, and in particular the Office of the Vice President, were unwilling for for me, a career officer, to have that title. It wasn't until it, uh, a deal had been made for my exit that I was given retroactively the title. The whole rest of the time I was senior advisor because I was, from their point of view, on the way out and only a temporary um, occupant of that seat. So, I mean, in other words, the, the context was, you know, a fairly uh, robust discussion of whether, and these are my words, but uh, whether you know, competition or, or cooperation should reign supreme in U.S. general relations. And Zalek's effort was uh, to, to enter, uh, and, and again, I, you know, he, he'll speak for himself, but from a, a supporter's point of view, uh, from his, you know, one of his staff's uh, perspective, you know, my sense was that he was more than willing to enter into something of a void that while there was a, a lively discussion with stronger uh, vocalization of the competition perspective, 
than in, in years previous. There wasn't anyone who had kind of taken the reins of the relationship and, and decided to drive it forward. Anyone in the sense of a cabinet member or a president or a vice president, someone you know with the the gravitas and the political oomph to to make it happen. You know to move off in a direction and make everyone else follow. Instead, there was this uh, sort of cacophony. And this was mid-Bush administration, Bush 43. Yeah. And so um, I, I think the, the attempt was you know, to kind of recapture the notion of China on the inside, better on the inside than on the outside, um, but uh, to reemphasize to the Chinese side that, well, you know, we understood uh, the architects of the relationship understood from the very beginning that um, China being on the inside meant that China had to have a bigger voice on the inside. And, you know, of course, we hadn't been able to deliver that in various uh, uh, contexts like the IMF or, or um, you know, in, in specific other instances where the Chinese sought a bigger voice and we didn't deliver it, in my judgment. Hmm. I wanted to end with your time as ambassador in Malaysia and in Afghanistan to kind of take a look at a regional look at having spent a lot of your career on China and then to be in these two U.S. missions in, in, in those two capital cities uh, in uh, KL and in, in Kabul. From that perspective, and this is towards the end of your retirement and more closer to the time we are now, how did China look as a kind of regional player and how did you see your role as ambassador and then was China an important factor and how so and how, how did you see that? So uh, always important to try to see, you know, the, the relationship and the two countries from outside either one uh, and outside the relationship. So in Malaysia, uh, this was um, running up to 2010, so pre Xi Jinping, but still during a period when the South China Sea and, of course, Malaysia and ASEAN, you know, key players in, in the South China Sea, when the, the Chinese uh, efforts to expand in the South China Sea were in one of their acceleration phases. You know, this wasn't new. I mean, I, I can still remember back as an economic officer in 1983-84 on the China desk going to interagency meetings about China and the South China Sea and what to do about it. And the discussion never really <laughs> changed from the 80s to the 90s to the teens. Um, so Just the overhead imagery got much better. Yeah, that. that's true. You know, and, and, you know, to, and, and I suppose the implicit arguments became explicit. But um, So, you know, Malaysia as a, a country that saw itself kind of like Indonesia in the middle, um, you know, not on the U.S. side, not on the Chinese side, not wishing to choose, um, but alarmed by some of the commercial implications of the security steps. I mean, I think there was confidence in ASEAN and Malaysia in particular that the Americans could push back enough on the security and military side such that you know, the, the, the capacity of uh, trading vessels to transit the South China Sea was not at risk, at least not in the immediate future. But you know, they could see in Vietnam in particular not just incidents that were not very helpful, and you know they didn't want to have to repeat and, and deal with in terms of domestic politics on their side, but also commercial implications, so blocks that couldn't be explored because they're in dispute. So they cared, and you know there was a push for a, an institutional regional resolution. Um, the Malaysians were um, not the most important voice, uh, uh, but they were an important cover for the most important voice, and and it was I think um, you know a, a, a period when. That was that issue was escalating and went from you know have you heard about this are the Chinese doing this or that in your region to 
Um, well, the Chinese are clearly doing this. They're, they've decided to ramp up. What should we do to try and to how do we respond? Part, part of how the Malaysians responded was to allow for more American symbolic presence. So uh, before I was there, it would have been you know relatively rare for an American uh, warship to uh, to you know, pay a port of call in, in in Malaysia, and this was part of a larger non-China-related mm-hmm. evolution of the relationship under sure. Najib and with respect to Iran, and you know, a larger set of issues uh, after 9/11, in in which the moderate, so-called moderate voice of Islam in Malaysia was was deemed more important. But um, certainly, a, a part of of the relationship with China was. Malaysia trying to expand and deepen its economic ties to China while at the same time um, clearly and and quite publicly broadening its security ties to us. And the, also the economic ties to the United States and joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, I, I wanted to ask on that kind of economic side, you were there at a time, the global financial crisis, 2008, Beijing Olympics. There are a lot of events that happened in 2008 that if you're looking for a time when China arrives on the global scene, that's a, a good proximate year, eight, nine, Xi Jinping comes to power, 10, kind of that 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 phase. Yeah. Did, as ambassador in Kuala Lumpur, did, did, did it feel different at all for those kind of years? Yeah, I, I guess, um, yes and no. I, I, you know, and, and I would I would say, I would put it a little differently in the sense that, I mean, I would uh, identify of 92 to 2012 as a period in, in uh, China's development uh, where you know that 2012 really marked the, the the time when China decided that its moment in history had arrived I mean part of this was the personality um, and and part of it was events and uh, you know clearly uh, as I'm sure many of your interlocutors have said you know that the Chinese look back on uh, the, the Great Recession as you know as a moment when the U.S. stock was falling in America's uh, and, and China's was rising and, and clearly this notion of American decline which had been around for a long time of course and and was intimately tied up in the uh, social cultural political and economic distinctions between us in, in the sense that you know, democracy is is this sort of you know truism that everybody who works on U.S. China affairs knows that the Chinese believe that the U.S. democracy is 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 you know, too chaotic, never really going to um, sustain global leadership because uh, it, it just has too many weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Only a system like China's can work. And of course, we say the same in, in, you know, in reverse. So you can't blame the Chinese for being proud of their own system and what they've accomplished because they've accomplished a lot. Uh, we do, however, have a fundamental disagreement about the ultimate strength of a one-party system versus a democracy. And, and that hasn't gone away and won't. Um, so that you know that was the backdrop I think where you know the Malaysians during that same period I mean for them you, you have to go back to 97 and you know the Asian financial crisis was the um, uh, to, to put it incorrectly come to Jesus moment for them I, you know <laughs> the earthquake a, for them that's yeah. inapt but uh, yeah uh, you know that that's you know if you went to their central banker who uh, you know was quite chilly toward the US in many respects quite professional one of the most accomplished bureaucrats in Malaysia, but you know, clearly um, was emotionally involved in her and was passionately unhappy with what happened to Malaysia after the, after the financial crisis and the strictures that uh, it was put under on, uh, on, you know, in order to survive internationally. Um, so yes, I mean, uh, Malaysia during this period uh, had 
had become, and, and particularly under Najib, had come through a transition from Mahathir and become uh, much more focused, on, as Hong Kong had been for many years, on its future. You know, what was Malaysia's role in the future? Was it going to be a, a center of Islamic finance? Well, they wanted to. They obviously didn't have the critical mass to do it, but that was an ambition. Um, could it you know, be a leader in um, the food industry in the Islamic world? There are many different ways in which it was kind of reaching out and trying to find its new place. And, and I think Najib, all of his faults notwithstanding, actually had a pretty clear sense of the Malaysian economy's um, reliance on integration with the global economy, which was not alien to the Chinese experience. And so the Chinese experience did reverberate. I mean, it you know struck a, 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 a responsive chord in, in Malaysia, and there had been a history of Najib's father opening the relationship with China, and so a history of close relations with, with China in a sense of you know Malaysia as a spokesperson for the third world too, uh, particularly the Islamic third world. So there are all kinds of reasons why uh, both both at the government and the people-to-people level, there was reason for uh, you know expansion of U.S. China, uh, U.S. Malaysia relations. Um, but that said, it was always with a degree of wariness. I mean, really, the the analogy, they, they were analogous experiences. That is, China and all of its faults are different from America and all of its faults. But both of them have to be managed, and we have to find a way to, to you know balance and, and get the most out of each without. Paying too much ourselves—that right. was the—that was the relationship before all of those things mm-hmm. happened. And that was the relationship after it went really less so the Olympics and you know sort of China's rise more, rise to prominence and more so the operational terms of especially the South China Sea, but just China's greater involvement in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't you Finance, know, it wasn't just commerce, security, but yeah, you know, just yeah. everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of a pale Tourists. version. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, maybe the the best sort of uh, operational or or you know. Um, rather mundane way of, of looking at this is, you know, it used to be you'd go to the peak in Hong Kong and Cantonese would be the main language. And if you wanted to go in and get a special deal and you could speak Cantonese or bring a Cantonese speaker with you in a shop, a retail shop, you would. Post-97, certainly now, you know, it's all Mandarin yeah. and you wouldn't think about using Cantonese. And it goes back to this sort of Shanghai perspective that Hong Kong, you know, looked down their noses at the mainland, and now the mainland's looking down his nose at Hong Kong. I mean, a certain amount of that going on in Southeast Asia and Malaysia, too, where these hordes of Chinese tourists come in, they're, they're wanted for their their dollars, their renminbi, um, that, but, uh, you know, there's a certain, uh, and, and of course, Taiwan's an even better example of that, but, but they're resented for, you know, their being sort of Ugly Americans in, mm-hmm. in Chinese clothing, uh, or you know, for for their cultural insensitivity, mm-hmm. their um, desire to bring China with them wherever they go, you know, a, a lot of things that Americans are very familiar. The, the American Latin American experience would be, you know, would you know, those those who had that experience would find it very familiar. Um, and then your last uh, overseas tour in Kabul. This was. Many years after 9-11, uh, and s- we still at that point had a large presence in Afghanistan, and um, China's a small, small border with Afghanistan, but is an important kind of global player. How, how was that time, and how, how was China seen, and what, what, what was that like? Similar to what I was just describing in Malaysia, I think, um, you know, individuals or uh, individual businessmen or or um, municipal or regional leaders, you know, welcomed. Uh, Chinese uh, money, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, the Chinese presence, but it was uh, as plain as day that the Chinese were not interested in 
community building or nation building or the broader aspects of their commercial engagement. There was a comp- big Chinese copper mine. You know, they built the road to it. They developed the mine. They, you know, they worked the road out of it. It was a secure route to get money in and resources out, period. There was you know, just no desire to be part of a larger picture, um, which um, on the one hand, one could understand. I mean, this was a country still ruled you know, at the center by someone who was nothing but a balancer of warlords. And so the Chinese know how to deal with warlords. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of how it worked. On the political and security side, they really weren't uh, very active players. They had no desire to you know, risk political capital of any sort. And I think even, you know, I'm less connected to it now, but my, my overall impression is you know, this is a place where if uh, China were, were truly interested in developing a role for itself as a major player in the uh, economic and, and social development of those border regions on that side, you know, it would, it would have to invest a lot more political will. Uh, in, in particular, I mean, clearly the, the place that has money and, and can make a difference in Afghanistan is India. And, you know, that to the extent that we had some success during my time there on the economic side, it was in persuading the Pakistanis to allow uh, Afghanistan to transit Pakistan economically in order to get to the benefits of, of the Indian market as well as, you know, to entice the Indians to invest more. And someday, if, you know, Afghanistan is not... Um, Simply the the site where Afghan, uh, where uh, Indian, Pakistan quarrels play out, or Chinese Russian quarrels or play out, or whether if it's ever going to be you know an end in itself, rather a means to an end for these countries on, on the region, they're going to have to invest political will and a fair amount of treasure in, in the Chinese. Not, to my knowledge, have shown no interest in, in that at all, and and therefore uh, the Af- they, they have limited influence in Afghanistan. They haven't risked much, and they haven't gained much. Um, wow, quite a regional and um, inside China tour to force. Just kind of looking back on your many decades of dealing with the Chinese government and different parts of the U.S. bureaucracy, is there any kind of parting wisdom you have on kind of what works in dealing with Chinese officials and in kind of moving U.S. objectives forward? Well, I, I don't have a you know well-defined uh, nugget or, or pearl of wisdom for you. I mean, I I do think as um, you know as as I was nearing the, and as I was working uh, my second career uh, for seven or eight years uh, as a business consultant, you know, my advice to to businesses was to take seriously the decline in U.S.-China relations and to anticipate not just because of President Trump, but for much uh, more fundamental reasons that the relationship was headed toward a a rocky period and that it wouldn't be just a rough patch, as George Shultz used to say, but um, that we're headed toward a realignment. And and this was um, not inevitable, in in my view, uh, and and isn't done yet, as I alluded to earlier. I mean, I think it's still worth um, the Americans keeping in mind their uh, short, medium, and long-term national interest and working to preserve options for realization of those interests, that it's it's a fool's errand to um, close down those options and determine now that our worst-case scenario is upon us and we should just accept it, embrace it, and uh, live with it. Um, 
But, I mean, that's not a reason to be supine, right? So as there are cyber attacks on the United States, we have to respond. I mean, this is an issue that I dealt with in, in, toward the end of my diplomatic career that as we define the, the rules for cyber offense and cyber defense, we have to think about international law and we have to make sure that the diplomats and the warriors are looking at these questions, not just one or the other or the counter-terrorist. Um, and, and so, you know, in a way, it's just the, uh, the, the overall uh, global situation uh, influencing U.S.-China relations in, in addition to the narrative that, you know, started with wherever you want to start, but, you know, started at least 150 or 200 years ago uh, and, you know, is one that is unique to U.S.-China. Uh, there's also this global setting that we have to keep in mind and, and try to remember that um, in some respects uh, the relationship uh, brings damage to U.S. national interest in that global context. In some respects it, it brings benefits and again it's a matter of balancing those um, risks and rewards and, and trying to you know, ascertain how best to um, bring China uh, into equilibrium in that um, that equation of uh, both benefits from and obligations to the international system. I guess the, the bottom line for me is um, it's tempting now to start drawing conclusions about what U.S.-China relations are. And I think at any point in the past, had we done so, we would have been mistaken. I would urge people not to do it now, but rather uh, to work toward what our definition is of uh, desirable outcomes and not accept the Chinese definition of undesirable present. Ambassador Jim Keefe, thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And with you. Ambassador Jim Keith, speaking with me from Washington, D.C., you've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green. <laughs>